0: Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Our guest today folks is a precious brother. His name is Mark Neville. He lives in the state of Oklahoma, lives in Norman, Oklahoma, the home of Oklahoma University. I used to live in that city. I, I live not in Norman. I live in another suburb. I went to school at Southern Nazarene University, did my bachelor, baccalaureate degree there and completed my master's degree there, my first master's. <clears throat> and I happened to live back in Oklahoma City a couple different times and uh, served on the staff of a church there, Bethany, First Nazarene in Bethany, Oklahoma, a city that I love dearly. I really appreciate Mark as an economist. I'm going to have him take the first couple minutes and just tell about his life in the, in the Reagan administration in uh, Bush 41 administration. He is uh, being dispatched to China. Uh, He is being sent to Ukraine for their first elections. Mark and I traveled together along with uh, my wife, Rosemary, and along also I think Congresswoman Michelle Bachman and a couple other members of Congress. We were in Ukraine to speak a few years ago and we got there and uh, Mark, as soon as he walked in, was kind of a hero to everybody. The, the first president, after once they threw off communism, about eight, 1990 or so, uh, the first election they ever had, Mark was the one sent by the uh, White House to monitor the election. As so we walked in, there was the former president with arms around uh, Mark, so happy to see him again after all these years. That being said, Mark Nettle, we welcome you to this call. We're going to cover some important things about China. Folks, you want to take notes on what he's about to say about China and the world economy. He's going to cause, he's the only one of the few guys I know that can talk about economics and make it very exciting. So get ready for a wonderful time. But Mark, let's start. First of all, just talk about your life for the first minute or two minutes. Tell us a little bit about your story.
1: Well, Jim, it's great to be with you tonight. I, I That's a very kind introduction. And uh, I don't know if I can make economics interesting or not, but I'll, I'll try <laughs> I've had a very blessed career. I'm so grateful to the Lord for the places that I've been able to go. I, uh, as a as a young lawyer, uh, represented many many members of Congress and senators on their personal matters uh, when uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act was imposed upon the public and uh, the things terms like political action committee were invented. And that it was a creature statute, and that got me into. Uh, What I really liked was international law, international economics, and when the wall came down, I was dispatched by members of various Senate committees that then didn't know. We didn't know. This is in the the 80s, early 80s, and and training people to to have some hope that, that democracy could be implemented in their country. But let's get to the point of what 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 you're interested in and what we're going to talk about today. I was dispatched. I did trade analysis for President Reagan uh, in the mid-80s. I reviewed trade treaties that were negotiated in Geneva, Switzerland, then a general agreement of tariff and trade, along with the team. Uh, If the Senate uh, ratified those treaties, then it was our job to advise the president whether to sign them into law or not. And so we started to get a feel then for the reset that was coming in the world. This term reset uh, is something that the world has gone through many times, Jim. If you could actually track it all the way back to the Roman empire uh, through our uh, revolution in 1776. But following World War II is the most recent one when the world came together and restructured the world's currency and established the dollar as the primary reserve currency. And so uh, up up through 74 in the 80s was the end of that reset when the United States became the world's dominant economy, the world's dominant currency, the world's dominant banking system. And I was privileged to be part of the Reagan uh, administration at that time when we were doing that analysis. When the wall started to come down, we now know that the Soviet Union was in trouble in the late 80s. Uh, you want me to just go into that, Jim, or do you want me to? Yes, no, uh, no. no I mean, that, that's kind of what got me there. But uh, It's very but, important. Uh, when the uh, wall started to come down in the late 80s, we didn't know how much trouble the Soviet Union was in uh, by, say, 1987. But this crack started to appear uh, in Bulgaria and other countries that were looking for alternatives to communism. Uh, We didn't know Ukraine. It was an area of the Soviet Union called the Ukraine. It it had only been a government for two years back in the early uh, 20s, 1920s, was was seeking independence, but we didn't know that yet. And so uh, at the same time this is going on inside China is a reset that is is required for their banking system and their currency and how they're going to implement a new country. And I had been uh, in the middle of that through different uh, request overseas to our government to send a team over and sometimes I went by myself I worked on the Bulgarian constitution in 1989 and uh, and their independent referendum to, to endorse that constitution and become independent an independent state of the Soviet uh, from the Soviet bloc at that time uh, <clears throat> Ukraine uh, had declared independence about the same time that Tiananmen Square. These are events that we forget about how compacted they were. Tiananmen Square in 1989, Uh, China trying to come out from behind uh, their own isolation in 1990, 1991. And so I made several trips to these different countries and what was going on in China was separate from what was going on in Ukraine and Bulgaria and other countries, of the Soviet Union. But let's take, and then Boris Yeltsin, uh, the Republic of Russia, Uh, declaring independence and a president running for office without the permission of the Politburo and and the Supreme Soviet Council as a freely elected president of the largest uh, republic and and the governing republic of the Soviet Union. I mean, he he officed in Moscow uh, as president of Russia when Gorbachev was still president of the Soviet Union. Okay, these things are all going on at the same time, Jim. And uh, so it starts, let's, let's kind of do the story this way. It starts with I represented Boris Yeltsin in his election for independence. I say I represented I was part of a team that helped conduct that election. However, the Soviet Union uh, issued a decree that the Supreme uh, Executive Council of of the Politburo that they were going to continue the elections until they got ahead. And they didn't understand even then because they were so used to what they said became law that how nonsensical that was and how the West would reject it. So I remember I'm in a meeting with Boris Yeltsin, there's a reason for this because it all fits to Ukraine and then to China. Uh, what do we do about this? I said, well, in the West, we'd file a lawsuit, go to the Supreme Court and say, this is unconstitutional, you can't do it. And they said, well, that's never happened before. And I said, well, that's what I would do. And, and so we filed the petition and I'm the only non-Soviet lawyer in the room. And so they send me in front of the Supreme Court because you know they're afraid they're gonna be put in jail if they lose. Well, at least I had diplomatic privileges and I argued the case. And make a long story short, they <clears throat> were not listening to it and had no uh, care whatsoever what I had to say about the Soviet Constitution. And I realized I'm losing. So I quoted law, jurisprudential law to them, which sounded like it was coming from our Constitution. Everybody has equal protection of law, regardless of race, creed, color, or sex. And the due process that entailed was they couldn't continue the elections until they got ahead. That would, would disrupt any of the, of the, the intent and purpose of, of, of their election. And they're beginning, they get up and they basically are gonna rule against me and say, I don't need a lecture from you, Mr. Nuttall on democracy or how we treat our people. You could quote your constitution all you want. And I said, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm quoting from your constitution. And so they didn't really, they copied some of our clauses, but had no intention of, uh, of honoring them. And that kind of stunned them. It's kind of like they had never heard that argument before. And then they said, well, that's interesting. And so we'll get back to our superiors and get back to you. And they started to get up and leave. And I called them back in session. I said, Mr. Chief Justice, you don't have a superior. You're the superior court of the Supreme Soviet Union, of the Supreme Politburo. You, Have to rule here now, and you can't have conversations ex parte without me. And that again seemed to stun them. Well, anyway, the point of telling the story, Jim, is that's where the truth started to penetrate the lie. And people started to wake up that what these countries wanted to do made no sense, and what they were telling them was a lie about their future, but their rights. And Jim, in two days, 48 hours later, they ruled in my favor. Now, I, I think it's the only time that I, that we know of, particularly where foreign uh, counsel appeared before the Soviet Supreme Court and they ruled in their favor against their own Politburo. The election was held on time. Boris uh, uh, Yeltsin becomes the president of Russia. Now, why is that important? Okay, then the uh, uh, Ukraine declares independence and they bring out the tanks, they're threatening war and people forget that, that there was a coup uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was, was in isolation for three weeks in Crimea while we're in Ukraine. And <clears throat> the hardliners wanted to nuke us. And that's why they, they, they basically had, had conducted the coup. They're going to stop the elections and they're going to deal with the United States. Why? Because they knew they were losing and there was no defense. They didn't know what they were going to do. They were in trouble. Their gold supplies were, were, were diminishing and they had no answer except to go to war. Now we didn't know this for 10 years later by the way until all the documents were released but they actually advised Gorbachev to 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 send the missiles 1 to 200 million people would die but they would come out of it better because more of their assets in the Soviet Union were hardened underground
0: that was the logic What was Gorbachev, was the, the the nuclear missiles were were to send to the US you're saying Yes this is this was nuclear wars they were recommending
1: with the US And what year Again, was that 19, 1991. and so <clears throat> this is all. And the reason I, I, I started with Boris Yeltsin because here's the reason the coup wasn't successful, and why Gorbachev w- was brought back to power and made it back to Moscow was because Boris Yeltsin wouldn't go along with the hardliners, the generals, and he respected the constitution. If, if Boris Yeltsin not been in power, they may have been successful as hardliners,
0: and, and I might add had had mark Nettle not been there boris yelton wouldn't have been in power well if i hadn't made that argument to the supreme court
1: I, I think they would have continued the elections and he wouldn't have been elected now <clears throat> all right so the elections then are held in ukraine ukraine is uh, independent and then we worked for a couple of years to set that government up and tonight we can talk about that if you want to but let's get to china because that's i think what your question is at the same time Deng Xiaoping was observing all these events uh and so and, he, and who is
0: he what's his
1: what's his title well, don, don sau peng was the elder chairman of of then the the communist government of china uh he he Jing was the elected president they have an elder system where elders inside their parliament bureau uh, actually run the country there's 23 of them that we know of and he was the chair of the kind of the inner council of the Communist Party. Uh, Xi Jinping was the elected president, but we don't even even know how they elect him today. They basically are picked and appointed. Uh, But Deng Xiaoping, along with a a gentleman by the name of Chao, were the two elders that made the 500 mile march uh, in the war with Chiang Kai-shek who then escaped to Taiwan and established the Republic of China on Taiwan. Uh, back to Beijing to establish the People's Republic of China.
0: Okay, let's uh, just for a moment there. Uh, uh, for those, there's going to be a lot of people who won't understand why China and Taiwan. Why? Why is China always trying to take Taiwan? The average person wouldn't know that. So, talk about that relationship a, a little bit, as we have the background of that.
1: Okay, well, it's it's a story in itself, Jim. I mean, uh, Taiwan was formerly the island of Samosa off the coast of of China. It's about, I want to say, 40, 50 miles off the coast. In the Civil War in 1949, between Mao and and, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ally of the United States. In that Civil War, Chiang Kai-shek lost. He was driven to the coast, escaped with civil artifacts and other things from the previous uh, government of China. Uh, to the island of Samosa, and he set up there on the, and then renamed it the island of Taiwan uh, and reestablished the ROC, Republic of China. Uh, declared independence, uh, claimed that he was an independent country. Uh, he was recognized then uh, as a Republic of China as if there were two governments, um, Mao, Deng Xiaoping, and others then uh, as I said, did, conducted the 500 mile march back to Beijing and set up the Communist People's Republic. And it has been in conflict ever since. China claims Taiwan as their territory, as a, a, an errant republic that was established illegally and is still part of China. Uh, Taiwan is recognized by the United States as a provincial government. Uh, they have privileges. They have trade. They have, they're, they have banking of international airport. Uh, they're not members of the UN Council, uh, and that has has been a, a, an island and a government in dispute with China and the West since 1949. That's the history. A quick history. Um, yes. Yeah. Of Taiwan.
0: Yeah. The United Nations. They I think have observer status or something like that, but uh, right. and they don't even have an ambassador no. in this country they have a representative or something's all they're allowed allowed to have I, I believe i'm using the right title there okay continue on then with your story
1: well after about the same you know Tiananmen square was late 18 1989 uh there was turmoil there were there was concerns that there would even be civil war in china but you know that's some time now after 1949 now, it's important to remember how these resets work and that in fifty-year cycles and forty-year cycles, uh, you know, communism runs its course, and it's running its course in China right now. But not to get into uh, economic dissertation of resets, let's just talk about what happened in '91 and where we are now in a new reset thirty years later with with uh, China. <clears throat> China had, had well, the West had recalled all their ambassadors. Uh, there was no official representatives of Western governments in Beijing. Uh, Deng Xiaoping had reached out to the West asking for help to reestablish the uh, Shanghai Stock Exchange. There was another reason for that, Jim, but uh, uh, Chairman Deng had decided that he didn't want to follow the same course as the Soviet Union, which collapsed December 6, 1991. So this all happened. And in, in, in from 89 to 91, and by 93, we got a new world order. And uh, we now see the size. where I'm going with this is we now from you look back at history, we know how much China, how much trouble China was in before today that their hardliners understand that we didn't understand in 87, 88, and 89. You got to remember that what, what, is, is, what is really phenomenal about the fall of the Soviet Union, six months before it collapsed, no intelligence service in the world predicted it. Nobody predicted that Ukraine would, would declare independence and be successful. But December 6th is when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. And, by, and the summer before that was Ukraine had not declared independence. It was July when Boris Yeltsin was elected president and I defended him in front of the Soviet Supreme Court. And from then in, until they, they, they dissolved, no intelligence service in the world predicted it. And they're not able to predict what's going to happen in China now. So let's let's move to China. There were no ambassadors. He wanted help. I mean, there was a reason why they they chose uh, the United States to help them because the only other two countries that could do it were Germany and Great Britain. Great Britain still uh, held Hong Kong. That that Hong Kong had not transferred from British control. That didn't happen until 1999. Uh, to Chinese control and, and they didn't trust him anyway. Germany was an option, but because of World War II and some other things, they didn't feel comfortable with them and they chose the United States. I was chosen to go over and reopen the Shanghai Stock Exchange and advise them how to do that. But part of that mission uh, was to carry diplomatic pouches back and forth between the White House and Beijing and from Beijing back to the White House while I was doing my work. and. We could talk about what some of those things were. They were mainly military and trade, but uh, I went through a cryptid system. Uh, they would, uh, to know that what I carried was from the president. And then when I carried back in the seal pouch, went to the Chinese and amb- well, residents and ambassador's residence in, in embassy in, in DC, and they would decode it. And then brief I mean, all this was debriefing us through then the chief of staff, uh, former governor Johnson unit. And so while I'm there, I'm meeting with Deng Xiaoping. I, I knew him personally. We talked
0: about. This, are we the year we're talking about? Is 1991?
1: 1991, 1992. Well, yeah. I, I, and I did some of, the, some of this work in 1990, right after Tiananmen Square. Uh, but those that three-year period, and primarily 1991, uh, and so it was quite a year actually, uh, in the world geopolitically when you look back at it, and and. And, and put the sequence of events together. Now, so, Deng Xiaoping had looked at what happened to the Soviet Union and said he was not gonna make the same mistake they did, and this is a direct quote, fly the nose of the airplane into the ground. While the, we didn't know it at the time, that the Soviet Union was using its gold supply to, to buy food, uh, oil, and strategic uh, minerals or strategic needs for their economy, went for 2,000 tons of gold to 160 before they collapsed. And Chairman Dung said, we will never do that. And basically the stock exchange was to be reopened for liquidity. Soviet Union didn't have a stock exchange. Uh, Entered to international banking so that they could be part of the world's financial system and cash flow of goods, of currencies. When I was representing Boris Yeltsin, you couldn't wire money in and out of the Soviet Union. You had to get in with special permission, carry some dollars, but mainly rubles. And uh, there there was no connection to their banking system in the world. When they collapsed, it was like a building in a downtown area imploding upon itself, If you can get my metaphor. And you you can walk down the street and if the dust didn't get in your eyes, you walk right on by. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody knew it. It didn't impact anybody's economic system. There were no connected banks and the world went on. It won't be the same though with China because they are integrated into the banking system. And the third thing was take a little more time to explain and I won't won't go into today, but the third thing he did was establish the staple of food that the the average peasant used to survive in a currency. His idea was to establish a currency. So they bought at the same world price as anybody in the world. Uh, For the Soviet Union, it was bread. For China, it was rice. And they were... Again, we, we had to work with Taiwan at the time to do it because Taiwan had a stock exchange in 1990. So did Hong Kong. And I actually combined those stock exchanges three into one uh, so they could use their currency. But I, I advised him, Jim, I said, if you, their Federal Reserve is not like our Federal Reserve. It's a communist system. It's called a command economy. They dictate down to the provinces and tell them what the budget is. Tell them what they'll pay for uh, goods and services. And then they do that down to the provinces. And if it doesn't work, then they just try to readjust it in the next five year plan or the next year. In the United States, it's just the opposite. Our economy is based on what goes on on the ground. As it percolates up, we tax profits if they exist. If we don't, we borrow money in T-bills. But it comes from the ground up and the people decide what the economy is. In a communist system, it's the top down and they dictate it. And dictation doesn't work. And, and And I told the chairman then, I said, Chairman, if you set your Federal Reserve up this way, your currency will never be tradable in, an ex, in a floating exchange rate with the rest of the world. And his answer to me was, it doesn't matter because one, then 1. 1.2 billion people will do what I tell them. They'll save when I tell them to save, they'll buy when I tell them to buy, and they'll, they'll actually perform the economy as I direct it. And that's why we'll be able to compete in what he called Chinese capitalism. And I said, well, I respectfully disagree or, or, or dissent, because your currency will never be a value that we can determine. And he said to me, "You know," he said, Mark, it'll take 30 years before we can determine which of us is right. And the other thing I regret in those conversations is why, I never asked him why he thought 30 years, but it was 30 years at the end of last year, we had our last conversation in that setting. <clears throat> I've had some communications back and forth in general with him, but not with that one-on-one. And if he was alive today, I would ask him, Jim, I'd say, okay, we had those conversations 30 years ago. And now you claim to be the world's second largest economy, somewhere between 12 and 15 trillion. And nobody wants your currency, including yourself. The currency is not tradable, not even Hong Kong. Now they use it through government contracts, but it is not an openly tradable currency that anybody can rely on for international commerce or for, for debt management. You don't, you, and they don't their debt's not in, in, their debt internally is in yuan's, but externally they borrow like everybody else in dollars. Okay, so that's the point now. So what, what is all this about? They have come to a point that we can now examine somewhat like the Soviet Union in 1988, 1989, two years before they collapsed. They, their their economy is not performing. They have no social security. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're a, a population now that's older rather than younger. Uh, and they had promised them years ago that they would invest in real estate that by the time they retire they'd be able to they'd be able to have retirement income from real estate rentals now their real estate markets overbuilt there's not enough youth to, to use it even if they what would they they do when they retire but to even move in or rent those those rooms and buildings and they're in terrible trouble
0: no, 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 because- on china i don't want to break in your thought but you say in China are you referring when you say they're overbuilt, are you talking about like these, I've heard of these reports of cities that are built, the well, million people and, and the cities are completely empty. Is that what you're referring to? No, um, the city, they did build cities. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm just
1: gonna ask you a question. My, I mean I know this is a, a live interview, how you play it live. You just tell me when you want me to stop because these each of these questions requires some explanation. the The Chinese over the years have built cities that nobody lives in. They don't understand the natural inclination of people independently pursuing their own purpose in life, their God-given purpose and how they then set up cities and, and economies and share in, in goods and services on the demand of the grassroots by the city level. So they build these cities and they just take people and disperse them and put them in it as if there was gonna be some automatic combustion there and it would all work doesn't work that way you can't put 10 million people in a city and say okay now go function cities grow from the grassroots up it's organic carpenters and plumbers and electricians and bakers and agricultural people they move in and they decide from each other what they want and that builds the economy that grows from there and if it's got rivers and highways and natural intersections that's usually where they can they connect you can't just pick a spot and put people in it and they didn't work and so those simply those cities are empty now, that's what is wrong with their currency. They, they built the cities that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and they just write it off and don't account for it on their books. They don't have double book uh, bookkeeping entry. And so our government spends money on things uh, that don't work, but we account for the dollars that were spent. So what happened to all those people? And what happened to all those yuan's in those cities that were built? Well, they're still out there. People are labor costs or materials or goods or under mattresses they are still in circulation and nobody knows for sure how, how how much. And because they just kind of scrape it off and so say, that doesn't matter anymore and we start over again. It doesn't work that way. You know, you still got to account for those those yuan's that were spent to build those cities nobody lives in. Now, that, and so I'll just give you the number. Harvard University has done a study, which I don't disagree with that the yuan is 26% overvalued. And therefore, to really reconcile it as a currency, they'd have to take a discount uh, in their assets of 26%. They can't afford to do it. And so we're going to get to the point of where they are today and what their problem is. But their currency, we don't know how many are out there. We don't know how it's valued. And therefore, that's why it, it can't be tied to any flea folding exchange rate because their accounting system is so different from ours. Their system of command down rather than profits up. Uh, it fluctuates so much and so differently from Mars from cycle to cycle that there's no comparison, no collaboration, no way to coordinate it. Okay, now what am I talking about on the markets, the real estate markets overdeveloped? This is residential housing in Beijing in Shanghai and other areas and other cities. There's a lot of cities in China. This was where they encouraged developers to go out and take the savings of the people and put it into a high-rise apartment building to build condos. Now, and they're they're built, and there's some people living in. These aren't the see-through cities that, that I just mentioned. Those are a different category of, of failed venture. This is a real estate market they tried to copy after ours. Well, you go build housing. You build um, condos or, or next to the ocean. You uh, you build um, uh apartment complexes and people rent and there's real estate, residential real estate. And by by being involved in the way on their government and using it as some sort of a government tool for retirement, it got overbuilt. And at the same time, their population has is heavily now over 55, I think actually over 65, and they have no social security for them. But even if they did, their real estate bubble it, uh, it, the only thing that's holding it up right now is you can't—they for, can't foreclose on their own real estate, and that's the other problem. That's another day's discussion. We have in this country what's called bankruptcy. You bank—you can go through bankruptcy. It flows through the system. There's a system that accounts for that. Our credit cards account for it. Banks account for it, and it works in our system. They don't have that there because everything is government-owned. Now think about that again. Everything has some government ownership in it. There's very little private ownership where you own it all yourself. Even the cars they drive are subsidized by the government, and they people might own their car, but the government helped pay for it. Okay, so what I'm talking about is a is a real estate market that they thought would be the retirement for an aging population that is overbuilt, and now the investment in that real estate, even the cities that it, that that, that in which it exists is a real problem and a jeopardy for a top-ended, government-dictated economic development plan that hasn't worked, if that makes sense. Now, so where they are today, they don't know what to do. And the only thing, they can't take a haircut on their currency to get it in line with other uh, currencies. Or they have their own World Bank, their own banking system that's not completely compatible with the West. And they're at a point where if they can't get Basic worldwide needs, particularly oil and wheat. If they can't and rice to some extent, they don't. They make their own rice, but they don't make enough food to feed themselves. And so, basic basic needs of society: energy and food. If they can't buy it in yuan's, they will collapse. Now, Peter Zayn is. A, I haven't met the gentleman. I I, I may here in the future, but. Wrote a book called The Beginning of the End is Just the Beginning. He's predict- been predicting this problem in China for some time, and he's a, a CIA not CIA. He's a Defense Department, State Department analyst who's come kind of to these 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 conclusions just based on the demographics and what he sees in front of him, uh, based with just looking at the facts. And now he has, has and he said that they will collapse by twenty fifty. They won't be the same country they are today. Probably divided into four regions. I could go into my analysis of, there's actually six regions of China, if you, if you will, but he's now accelerated at the point that he thinks it'll happen in 2030. And what I could tell you that my, having lived in the Soviet Union, having known Deng Xiaoping in 1991, having known Boris Yeltsin, saw what they went through, having been involved in, and I didn't observe, Jim, the elections of Ukraine, I ran them. I was the consultant on the ground that, that ran that election and we had to build it from scratch. They'd never had an election before. They didn't, have, they didn't have precincts, they didn't have ballot boxes. We had to actually go out and get carpenters to make ballot boxes, divide the country into precincts, come up with lists that we knew who Ukrainians were to help them vote. We had to come up with our own script, our own currency because we were now isolated from, from Moscow without rubles. I carried cash in to help run those elections by State Department permission. Uh, the French actually printed the money for us and we ran kind of a surrogate economy with our own money system uh, for those elections. I, there was one other Westerner on the ground there, a, a Ukrainian national with, a, with an American passport that, that worked with me. We were the only two Westerners on the ground. There, was no, there were no embassies. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a country. I reported to, to the attaché in Moscow. I traveled to Moscow and reported back to the president through the attaché in Moscow what I saw going on. And so we worked, we ran the elections. I was there when the tanks were in the streets. Uh, they, the hardliners wanted Gorbachev to pull the trigger and threaten, just like in Czechoslovakia in 1956. And he declined to do it. And had again, Boris not been there to support us, who knows what the story would have been. But anyway, that, that was Ukraine. And at the same time, Deng Xiaoping is observing this. So that's what they brought him to the conclusion that, <clears throat> In 91 and 92, they had established stock exchange for liquidity, a banking system for, for investment, uh, and, uh, and a food system that the average person could buy the basic staple in a currency at the same price however it was traded uh, uh, anywhere in the world. And so now what's happened, Jim, is, is that they don't buy rice at that point anymore because nobody knows what the yuan's worth. It's subsidized.
0: Everything is up, start, start one sentence back, repeat what you just said. I'm sorry? Back start one sentence one, back. one sentence one sentence and repeat what you just said. Today, the average person in China
1: does not buy the basic staple, rice, in a currency that can be calibrated in dollars or any other currency in the world. In other words, they do not know at what price they buy rice, which means that it's not anywhere comparable to Taiwan or Hong Kong or anywhere else in the world where you basically pay for rice in a currency that's matched to the dollar or in dollars and that is the biggest problem facing them today they don't know how to support the the entire matrix of China I mean from energy to manufacturing to food in a currency that no one will take on its face value if they say it's worth and so now all of this that you hear about the BRICS moving into a Chinese yuan system. Uh, Saudi Arabia going to sell them oil in yuans. These things are real threats, Jim, and and I'm worried about them, but it's not based upon the currency. It's based on countries today uh, for geopolitical reasons. There are other reasons. So why would Lula and Brazil move into some accord with China? Well, it's because they're a totalitarian country. They, They want to be more socialistic and they want to be free enterprise, and that's their alternative. And they're willing to risk their account, their economy on a currency that nobody knows what it's worth. Saudi Arabia may be leading totalitarian and, and where the, the, the Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman can do what he wants without fear of, of some sort of constitutional order. And then in Russia, uh, Putin uh, wanted to be able to u- invade Ukraine, I think, for strategic minerals. I mean, 17% of the world's Rare earth minerals are in Ukraine. It's not just that the food supply, but I think that Russia, I mean, it was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and they may want to recapture it just for that reason, even though that when we get into the world economy, if we have time to talk about it, that, that war will disrupt food supply. There will be shortages and prices will spike. That, that we may be able to cover for a few years if they can stop the war and start growing food again. But, but Ukraine's a key component with the United States. And, and a few other countries on food for the world. Now we make enough of the United States for a while, but that, you haven't asked me that question yet. But why would anybody join into a, what I call a bamboo curtain economic system where everything behind the bamboo curtain was traded in yuan's when you don't know what it's worth is for some other geopolitical reason uh, to for what they want to do with their country or they want to do in the world. Now there's two other things going on and I'll stop. One, when you asked me about the world, world economy, we are a, a world that exists, 193 countries in the world, and every single country is in over 100% debt to its GDP. There was some argument that, that Switzerland wasn't, and, and they may not be quite at that that level, but now you see what their bank
0: problems with Credit Swiss. they still got they still got debt problems. Massive just, debt. Back up just one second here. Every country, they're, you're saying their national indebtedness is equivalent to their annual GDP? It's in excess. They're in excess. In the what's, excess what's, for, example, for example, the United States, what's our, our total GDP in the U.S.? Okay, now, I, I, so you'll just cut me off when you don't want me to talk
1: too much. Oh, no, no, this is- uh, uh, Okay, so the, the total here, this is something I, I can give the hard numbers on. The United States GDP right now, somewhere around 23 trillion and growing. The cover of the, of the Economist magazine I uh, just, well, the, the cover before this most recent one talked about that amazing American economy, how they do it. And I can tell you how they do it. I mean, basically, this isn't about our system. It's not our taxes. It's not even our dysfunctional government. It's because we're free, Jim. We get up every day as a people and you, we're the only, co- I think about this next statement. We're the only country in the world where you can get up every day and do anything you want economically as long as it's not against the law. You don't have to get a permit, is my point. You still gotta get a license to be a surgeon and you should. And I'm a lawyer and I believe in, in getting a license to practice law. So it'd be against the law to it otherwise. But I, I don't have to get permission from anybody to go pursue that and get my license or to go into manufacturing or risk my capital or come up with a new idea. But in including Great Britain, France, and Germany, you still have to get some permits because they are the remnants of a king system where the king owned everything. And you had to make your case before government that it made sense for you to use the king's resources in a certain way. What was in the king's benefit for you to do X, Y, and Z? I mean, even even, uh, Columbus made his his point to the Queen Isabella and she branded him an entrepreneurial deal, a third for a quarter, by the way, Uh, i'll take uh, i'll pay for everything and get three fourths and you get one fourth of what you find over there but it had to be in her interest and the remnant of that you can make some some case that australia and new zealand still but not even there you still have to get permits that that you don't have and so we're free to experience the energy and the mind and the intellect of of the spirit that god's given us to perform and do what we want to do and if you're doing what god designed for you to do and you're following your natural desires that's why we prosper. (laughs)
0: Okay, enough enough of the soapbox. Op- I mean, soapbox. But, but back to the this is very important. So, in the U.S., our, our total na- national indebtedness right now, not including unfunded liabilities, is how much? Well, they would
1: tell you that it's one hundred and that's one hundred thirty-one uh, trillion. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Thirty-one trillion. That, that the national that's the debt ceiling right now that hasn't been raised. Thirty-one trillion. And our GDP is about 23. So that's somewhere close to uh, 150% right there. But that's not the whole story. What the, what the government doesn't tell you is that they don't count in the, in the debt what they owe themselves. So all the money you paid in Social Security, Jim, none of it's there. Uh, it, you paid in an extra tax to a corpus, a trust fund, I paid into it every American pays into it and it was for a, a, a fund of money to be there when we uh, retired it's not it doesn't exist they sweep it every year into general revenue and put it in an IOU it's a coupon just like any other debt I owe IOU uh, the Social Security X and it's got a it's got an interest rate on it and it's a coupon punch mean it comes due and every a while well, they got to redeem it and the way Social Security is funded today is as a cash flow item in the budget. And so when we were spending uh, about four and a half trillion, our budget is about four and a half trillion dollars on about 3.2 trillion in income. So it was supposedly full employment, 3% unemployment, 3.5%. Currently, as you and I sit here, we're deficit spending $1.7 trillion right now.
0: And per, year, the, per year, per year,
1: per year. And, and for the foreseeable future over our income. So, and that's why they're hitting this debt ceiling. But let me, just us get to this debt, what they don't tell you. That, but I, I just don't understand. Well, I know why they do it. But let me tell you what the true debt is. So they do this in other agencies too. It's not just social security, highway funds and some other stuff. But anyway, primarily social security. The debt that the United States government owes, you and I on money that we've paid in for other reasons, is about $8 trillion. And it takes it then closer to 140 trillion that were in debt. Now that's real debt, it's it's due, it has a due date or an interest rate. But because they owe it to themselves, i.e. the social security, they owe it to the social security fund, they don't owe it to individuals, they don't owe it to foreign investors. They don't count it in the national debt. And therefore, when it comes due, they just, whatever the draw on social security is, they just cash flow it in the budget as a line item, that means that to the true national debt of what they've spent over and above what they've taken in, but, but also not contingent, not a future debt, current debt is about 140 trillion. I, I know I keep saying 140, 40 trillion. So 40 trillion on about 23 trillion, that's almost 200% debt to GDP. But they will tell you that it's 31, that's the current debt limit. That's what they have issued in T-bills, uh, they don't issue T bills to Social Security. They just put an IOU in there. So but it's a it's a functional uh, debt instrument. And so 31 trillion on 23 trillion. Does that make sense? And so we're Absolutely we're, like we're you know, roughly 150 percent debt to GDP right now in the United States. If you just look at the debt ceiling of what they're gonna what they're gonna be arguing on in about a month. But if you count all indebtedness owed
0: from to, to an entity, which is, includes themselves. It's closer to 40 trillion. Yeah, no, that makes a loss. And you're saying every nation of the world, uh, maybe Switzerland, I don't know, but with that potential exception, has the same problem. Yes.
1: And uh, it's hard to get a handle on, on world debt. I, I take a stab at it around, around 112 trillion on maybe ninety about 90 trillion in GDP. So you take all the world's debt, All the world's GDP, China, United States, everybody. Uh, We're about um, 110, 120% debt to GDP.
0: But the total total GDP globally is what?
1: Well, I, I should check this number. But the last time I looked, this has been a few months ago. I think we're about $112 trillion is the world's total world GDP of all countries. And the world's debt?
0: 94, 92,
1: 94 trillion.
0: Uh, I suppose we should have stopped, but I, I try to avoid using initials in all these interviews. Uh, GDP. Let's make sure everybody knows what GDP stands for. Uh, gross Domestic Product. And what would that mean, Jim? I, I got
1: so I got those numbers back. The, the, it's it's a it's it's ninety four it's ninety four trillion in GDP and one hundred and twelve trillion in debt. Now, and, and there's diverse ways to calculate that, but for your audience. Those aren't, that's not a bad estimate, but the point is, is that the world, the world gross domestic product is is the measure of all goods and services in a country. All the products, all the services it produces.
0: So every every groceries that's sold in the grocery store, every car that's sold, uh, a, a, a doctor doing surgery? Everything. All, everything would add up. You're saying if we went globally, <clears throat> about 94 trillion dollars but the world collectively in 193 nations owes 112 trillion yes and,
1: and and yes now if you go back and check all that i mean there's different ways as, as i said to calculate it could be a, it could be a little higher in gdp and debt but the point is is that the world the total world gdp is in is as a as a global society is in debt to over a hundred percent of the GDP in the world. Now that's Jim. That is that is borrowed debt. That's that's coupon T bills um, instruments that have to, that can be redeemed. That that is government debt. In addition to that, there's corporate debt and there's private debt. And in Japan, corporate and private debt is over 200% of GDP. It's, it's closer to 300%. In the United States, it's much, when you you just take the debt of, okay, you got the, 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 GDP, the GDP of the United States, 23 trillion. And, our, and let's just take the debt ceiling that they're arguing over, 31 trillion and change. Then you add to that corporate debt, Private household debt, credit card debt. It's it's another fifty trillion dollars. How much? Well, I don't know. I, I'd have. To, I've got a chart on this. I, I'm a little hesitant to quote all these numbers off the top of my head. Japan is the most indebted country, other than China. China and Japan are the most heavily indebted, and they're 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 at around three hundred percent. All debt, corporate, government, individual debt, is is, is bumps three hundred percent of GDP. The United States is closer to two hundred percent.
0: That's uh that's pretty alarming. So the implications of this uh, is the average person. What does that actually mean to us? This this is a gov- this is the governments of the world, not that we're in a world government per se right now, but we're so interrelated. Uh, that the, the world owes so much more than what it's capable of producing every year. Well, the what? reason
1: and the reason I went into that, first we'll get to individual if you like, but but what's driving geopolitics? The biggest fear I have about I understand what China's doing, having sat with Deng Xiaoping and having had this argument with him 31 years ago. I know the bind they're in, and they don't know what to do. And I'm worried about what hardliners are telling them to do. And invading Taiwan doesn't solve their problem other than you know they may have a Japanese strategy. The World War II strategy of Japan was to move their influence out past all the outbear islands, Philippines, Wake, Guam, all the out islands, and nobody could invade them from a landmass, uh, and they were safe. I mean, that's oversimplification, but then they were gonna run their own world over there the way they wanted to and, and tell the West you know, just to leave them alone. They never intended to invade us. But the, the, the reason to bomb Pearl Harbor was to take our Navy out so they could never attack us in a generation. Of course, they didn't understand the resolve of the american people but then other things and, and long-range bombers and other things that happened to them at the time but and if we hadn't won at wake or midway that, that war would have been a lot longer but that was the idea china now is trying to move their influence out in what i call a bamboo economic curtain beyond the islands beyond the philippines uh where if you want to do any and control the sea lanes uh, around the China Sea, so that any commerce in there has to be conducted through their banking system using their currency, which was the Soviet model. I think if Deng Xiaoping was alive today, he would. He, I, I don't think he would do it this way, because now he had to realize that that it doesn't work. I'll tell you something else that Deng Xiaoping told me. That and is that at the time he told me hardliners. This is 1991. He said the hardliners want me to invade Taiwan now because you're not in a position to stop us, but we probably weren't. And it's, this is a direct quote. I'm not going to do it because Chinese capitalism will work to the extent that, that Taiwan will want to rejoin us and will petition us to come back in because of our economic success. Mm. And now he's, of course, that's been proven wrong. And but And, and wanted me to tell the president that, I'm not going to invade Taiwan. I'm not gonna take their advice. And, and they didn't. <clears throat> now, uh, and that's where the one China, two policies came from. That's where the Hong, during the Hong Kong transfer 10 years later, they reiterated that so on and so forth. But now they understand, at least the hardliners, and I think probably uh, uh, she does too, that they can't continue. They're probably dipping into their gold supply now. They're not going to continue that. So, the reason to take Taiwan is not because they need the chip manufacturers, or it's still the old emotional uh, reason that they belong to us, that territory belongs to us, and they're not going to represent us as as an independent country. Then, would be that so that you can't, they can't have a free stock exchange, their dollar dominated system, their banking system is based in dollars. And it's a healthy little economy right there, particularly between Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong.
0: Now, repeat, repeat, back up a sentence. You don't think that she is thinking, I'm going to invite, invade Taiwan, not due to the uh, chips they produce and such, and not due to the emotional reasons of, hey, they should be with us. But for what reason? Repeat that one more time. Because they can't have a, an American free
1: enterprise system inside their curtain. In other words, you know, t- you know, Taiwan's right there. I mean, it's just 40, mile, 50, 50 miles off the shore. It has a stock exchange. It has a banking system, and they can't allow that. That if, if they allow that money to exist, that system to exist inside their curtain of influence, then it'll all gravitate there because nobody wants their currency. It won't work. Um, when I, rep- as I said, when I represented Boris Yeltsin and he was still Russia inside the Soviet Union, you couldn't. It was illegal to have dollars. If you had dollars, you could go to jail. And the reason the why I had them, I mean, I had diplomatic privileges, and I, I carried him into Ukraine a lot with with security, but not Moscow so much. I mean, the only way you could ever get any access to dollars back then, American Express had a desk, and they allowed American Express to service foreigners only, but no Soviet citizen could have dollars.
0: Why? Because it competes
1: with the system, and it will destroy their system.
0: Let me ask you a question, and I'm not trained in. A- economics at all so this may be really a remedial question if 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 i'm traveling overseas and i go to exchange and i switch from one currency to another uh i look on the chart and they tell me how much it is and they take out a fee and i have my money so what do you mean when you say nobody knows what the yuan is really worth well if you if you already know this worth.
1: You can, you, can get a, you can get an exchange rate for a yuan around 1.71, about nine to one, seven to one, but not in commerce. You can't buy oil, you can't buy wheat, you can't, do, you can't get long-term debt, you can't borrow in it. Their, their debt's not in, in yuan's except internally. Uh, you, you can't do transactions, you can't do investments. You can do some spot currency trades. But it is not. It's, it's not even used. Nothing like the euro, or the pound, or or the, the, the yen, or 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 the franc, that which can reasonably be used. The yuan is only used, and you can't use it for third party transactions. People You're don't. Hearing, people don't, hearing people hearing. don't. hold it, Jim. You don't go. You don't have a hundred yuan's, and you give it to third, fourth, fifth party, and it circulates. It doesn't circulate like that because nobody knows what it's worth. Well,
0: if, we, if you, you hear these countries switching to Yuan, what does that mean?
1: Well, it means a couple of things.
0: First, they have
1: tried. I mean, this has been going on now for almost 10 years. China has been trying to find ways to get countries to use their currency. So they tried it with Venezuela. And you, know, they had, you had a government there that was open to it. Uh, any socialist will, a government will lean toward totalitarianism because they're afraid of freedom. And there's a dividing line. Either, you go one way or the other, Jim. There's no static in the middle. I mean, France is probably the, the only one that's tried to do both ways, but there's still freedom in France, and that's why they're able to survive. It one way or the, it'll go one way or the other. So Chavez and others back in, in the day try to do a deal and we're interested in, okay, how would this work? And China says, well, we wanna buy oil from you in Yuans. And we'll just tell you what we think this currency is worth. And they go, and they looked at it and they said, well, what would we do with the Yuans? We can't put it in the bank here. We can't trade it next door with Colombia or any other country or Brazil. What would we do with it? And they said, well, you can buy anything that we make in China. At parity with the dollar, and we won't raise the prices for five years because they have a command economy and they tell you what stuff's worth. They tell citizens what they'll get paid. And they tell them what they can buy with it. Okay, so it's like Walmart dollars. So if you wanted to go to work for Walmart and they only want to pay you in Walmart dollars, you'd go. What do you do with Walmart dollars? We said, well, I can buy. Walmart said, so, well, anything in here. You can, you can buy anything in here what you want with it. And you, but you can't buy a car. You can't buy. Um, I don't know roof for your house. You can't buy whatever. There are a lot of things you can't buy with at Walmart. And so, if you take Walmart dollars, you'd have to have other clients paying you in dollars also. And if you could bifurcate your, your your economy where or your personal household where, okay, I can buy soap, I can buy food, I can buy some medicines, I can buy a gift card, I can buy some clothes at Walmart. And you say, and it was a good deal. You'd take it and say, okay, you'd have to say. This budget goes to, you got to spend all that money there, but I got to have dollars to buy tires for my car or whatever, if you get my point. That's why nobody does it. Okay, they couldn't make the deal work because Venezuela didn't have a big enough economy, diversified enough to figure out how they could separate the oil purchases you want and then something else in the West in dollars to run their banking system and everything else, and it didn't work. And they've never been able to come up with it. So now they're doing a basically, in my opinion, a sovereign modern system with, with Russia. And so Russia needs manufacturing goods. And we, uh, I mean, they supply them for dollars. I mean, for, for I'm sorry, they supply, they buy oil the yuans and they spend it back in uh, China for manufactured goods. And they can bifurcate that because they're also selling oil on the black market. I mean, the sanctions aren't working, Jim. I mean, we all know there's a black market out there and that market moves in broad daylight because it's tankers
0: and pipelines. It's not guys carrying. Describe, uh, describe, the, define the black market, what that actually is.
1: Well, it's a rogue uh, off the books market of oil traders that move that Russian oil around to uh, to favorable countries. India's buying it. and they're, they're just violating the sanctions. Uh, but you can't. You don't move oil in a small package on a plane and hide it under your coat and then go give it to somebody. It's right out there in the open. You move oil by hundreds of thousands of gallons at a time, a pipeline or tankers or other things. And it it operates out there and and, uh, in broad daylight. And the way to shut it down is is pretty harsh. The reason we don't shut it down is because a lot of countries would collapse if you shut it down. But we don't sanction China. And that's what's on this weekend they talked about. Now, let me just... We're talking about a lot of stuff here, so let me give you this point. China cannot survive sanctions, and it scares them to death. One of the first memos I wrote, was asked to write for President Trump, was why is is President Xi Jinping coming to see you in Mar-a-Lago? And this is in September of 2017 after the president had bashed him in the campaign, called him names and whatever, and as well as all the candidates did, and why would he come to you? And I said, now, you gotta understand this. And I didn't talk to the president directly. I wrote the memo to him personally, and it was carried in, and, and I understand they talked about it. But anyway, here's the point. I addressed it to him. I said, Mr. President, you have to understand, coming to a country club is an anathema to a communist. It's like an evangelical, Jim, you just go into a meeting at a strip joint when you could have gone across the street at a reputable restaurant. Why would you go to a strip joint? Well, you wouldn't do it. And why did why did he go to a country club, which is the height of capitalism, on his turf? Normally, he could have gone to the Capitol. They could have met in the Bahamas. They could have met anywhere, but at Mar-a-Lago at a country club. And the reason is, is because he came to the president with his hat in his hand saying, I need, I need some easement from sanctions or we can't handle them any longer. And he said, oh, and, 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 and the, I said, and what should I ask in return? This is through the, through the staff. And I said, ask, demand that he reform his banking system. They moved their bank, the Asian Development Bank into the World Bank that they recalibrate their currencies, figure out what it is, and we'll loan them the money. It would have been difficult, Jim, but back then we could have loaned them the 26% to bring their currency in line. It would have been about, you know, maybe as much as three or $4 trillion. But the world collectively could have done it. We certainly did it during COVID. We could have done it before then, all right. And they didn't. And somebody else advised the president to ask for meetings with uh, Kim song yung. And that's when he went to North Vietnam. And
0: Kim didn't want to North, meet. North, North North Vietnam? You mean? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. North, North, Korea. North Korea.
1: North Korea. I'm sorry. I said, don't no. Yeah. And and from North Korea. And and Kim didn't want to meet with him. And he went to, to, to Beijing. And she held to his bargain. He said, no, you're going to have to meet with him. You've got to do what he wants. And, and by the way, if you do something stupid, we're not going to back you. And, and when, when Kim threatened to shoot missiles over the Philippines to show how big a deal he was. And the president said, if you do that, we'll take you out. We're not going to let you tolerate and jeopardize the region. You're and, talking uh, the president. I'm, I'm told I'm told that that, that Kim asked she then what if there's nuclear war in, on the peninsula, the Korean peninsula on the border of China, and she said so be it. Uh, you shoot those missiles over the Philippines, you're on your own.
0: And yeah, he back down. We said he said the president, away. you're referring to the president of uh, uh, China. The president of China told the president of North Korea, I won't yeah. back
1: you if you shoot yeah. missiles over the Philippines. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: And he and he backed, and then and, and put President Trump was the one that's putting the pressure on him. And, and he backed down. And and I I, I knew then he wasn't crazy. Now, this is a guy who says that he the first time he played golf, he made 18 holes in one. And the the, the question you, you worry about is, does he believe in himself? Because they, you, know, you can get this this godly image of yourself that you can do anything. And I was worried that that he might shoot the missiles just because he believed he could get away with it. But now I know he's sane because I don't, and, I, and, I, and I'm also told that she said it, that, listen, President Trump may do it. He may take you out. I won't intervene.
0: And, yeah, this is, you're, you're saying this is the North Korea thought he was invincible, thought he was God.
1: Yeah, I, no, yeah.
0: yeah no, North, right. Korea, North no, I'm, Korea. I'm
1: kind of getting, I'm kind of getting off the subject here, though. And so, the sanctions are critical. Look, China, eighty percent of everything they make, they have to export. This is another thing about economics. A people understand. The United States of America. You ready for this? Is the only country in the history of the world to ever achieve a middle class that buys what it makes.
0: Wow, repeat that.
1: The United States is the only country in the history of the world that ever built a middle class that buys what it makes, self-sustained economy. Now, we export 30%, but every other country in the world, all the G7 and China, export 80% of what they make. They only purchase 20% locally. Now, they buy from other countries, too, but the general formula for world trade is you export 80% of what you make. And so does China. We buy buy 50% of what they make. So 40% of their exports. We can can crush China overnight by imposing the sanctions on them that we imposed on Russia. And the reason I went through the Trump story, President Trump story, the reason she came to see him was that if they if he didn't give him some relief from sanctions, they were going to collapse, and it would be a world catastrophe. And the advice to the president then was, "Yeah, uh, ease ease back a little bit, and uh, see what we can get out of him." And he asked for the meeting with the North Korean president instead of reforming the bank banking system. Now, they know that Jim, and so. There's this problem of sanctions and how we manage our currency. We've been given this God-given gift of world currency. The United States of America, I, I've, I've had this discussion with you, has all the marbles. All the marbles. There's nothing we don't control that we can't take anybody out we want to. We're the world's largest economy, the largest banking system. We buy 50% of everything made in the world. Therefore, our economy is more important to everybody else than than ours is to them. Well, if I said that right, we're more important to everybody else than they are to us. We're the world's currency, world's banking system, the largest military, the only country in the world that can actually enforce trade everywhere in the world. We have offices and bases all over the world. We're the only country. That does that we're the only navy that enforces the world's oceans and trade routes there isn't another one largest air force so on and so forth and we're the world's language every, every language english is everybody's first or second most i say most but 90 percent of the world speaks english first or second language and all those times i was representing uh boris yeltsin or working in china i tried to learn chinese i spoke a little russian But to be able to make technical presentations, they just say, "You know, quit, give up, just speak English." We 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 understand English, speak it, and they were grateful that I tried. But you know, it's our the world's our language. We and we can break anybody militarily. We can we can uh, boycott anybody. We can sanction them. We can bring India or Mexico or Brazil to their knees within weeks just by causing the transaction cost in dollars to be higher than any other country. It's called the kill switch. And now it's becoming a, a, an international term among governments. The United States has the kill switch and it's scaring countries to death.
0: Well, let me, because, let me break in here, but we, we see the Chinese Navy at potentially being at the strength of our Navy, we hear. We see our own military being feminized by lbgtq we see an occupant of the white house who is apparently getting worse in his dementia Uh, so we 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 certainly are seeing a lot of warning signs are we not of a nation that's not all that feared right now or respected around the world well well, first i'm talking about about
1: power that we have so those are different questions so let's talk about that a minute Yes, the Chinese have built a surface fleet that in numbers appears to be able to compete with us. It's not dispatched around the world. They don't have naval bases. Part of their Silk Road strategy was to get naval bases, but there's no, there, there's no seventh fleet roaming the South Pacific. It's, it's mainly in the South China Sea, but they, they, they woefully are unprepared with submarines. Our nuclear submarines are the art of the state of the art. Everybody wants them. And the other thing is, is that, that our Navy is combined with the British Navy. We're one Navy. And it's much, much larger than China's. Uh, our air force uh, is, is larger and we can move it around. We have more air bases around the world than they do. But let's just stick to the Navy, your question about the Navy. And that's what they're trying to do is build some bases there in the South China Sea, raise up some tolls you've probably heard about but uh, they are not capable of, of standing toe to toe with us on any aspect of their military uh, and they know it. Now, it would be brutal, Jim, I mean, it wouldn't be pleasant. I'm not saying you take them out in one shot, but our ability and our missiles, and even though they've got supersonic missiles and we don't, we've got enough missile power for our submarines alone to match their supersonic missiles. That's not the problem. But, and the economic sanctions, particularly if that's just the United States, whether our allies went with us or not. But Europe buys about 20% of what they make from the United States and Europe. If we allied against them like we have Russia right now, they'd be they'd collapse. And, and they know it. And so they're trying to decide what to do. They can't compete with us. And so this currency, the problem they've got, they've got to figure out some way to be able to use it on a broader scale. Now, the the Silk Road strategy of loaning money to all sorts of African countries and and build infrastructure for them, collateralized by their natural resources. They have to, you know, they have to pay those loans back in dollars, not yuan's. It's a way for them to wash out their currency to get dollars. They need dollars as bad as anybody else. And when those African countries can't pay for what they never needed in the first place, by the way. Now, let me repeat that. When we rebuilt Europe through the Marshall Plan, and the airports and the harbors of, of London and Germany, and, and well, Bonn and, and uh, <clears throat> France and other, and other countries. We rebuilt a system that was already in place, had just been destroyed and was ready to be reused. The deep water ports they're building in Africa never had a use, they're not part of the system. Can't, the Chinese don't get it. You can't just build it and they will come. It doesn't work for cities, it doesn't work for ports, it doesn't work for anything. You gotta let people at the local level migrate where they want to and, de- and decide where the places are. There's a reason why those ports aren't in some places in Africa and why those airports aren't part of the, na- the international air uh, traffic system. And so they build them and they don't meet expectations and then they, they go back and then and, and foreclose on their natural resources. And, and anyway, it's part of the game that they're playing, but they're not gonna make it unless we let them. They're, they're not, Jim. Explaining. We didn't okay now back now back to us as we now so yes the president has a problem you saw the Wall Street is the Wall Street now the Washington Post editorial either the president was supposed to announce today or tomorrow I don't know if he did today or not I've been in meetings all day but if we anticipate that he's going to announce seventy percent of the American people do not want him to run again sixty five percent of his own party doesn't want him to run again we're, and we're becoming kind of a, a you know, a numb democracy. Instead of exercising our rights, to who do we want to, to represent us? Well, we'll take what's there because they in power are demanding it. You now, in our own our own leader, President Trump, you know, sixty five percent don't want him to run, and over half the Republican Party doesn't want him to run. But he's still got the most votes. He's got thirty five percent base of the of the public, and and, and over, right at fifty percent of the Republican Party. Uh, against DeSantis, you know, the numbers. But my point is, the Washington, I, I think Jim was the Washington Post yesterday wrote in the Sunday paper that he has diminishing skills. I, I, think they, I think they called it skills. They didn't call it mental skills. But that at his age, it's a question for the Democratic Party. And that's a pretty bold statement for somebody like the Washington Post to say. And so your point is, well, what's what are the rest of the world going to do about it? Well, what, what I'm worried about, if you're China, okay, let's go to this, we talked about this for a long time and I hope I, I haven't overstepped your time, what you wanted, but what I learned from 1987 to the summer of 1991 on what happened to the Soviet Union, the same thing in, in certain, certain categories is happening to China. You can't control currencies, taxes, and spending from the top to the bottom and expect people then to adhere to it. It doesn't work that way. And there's a lot of reasons why, but it's all about freedom, Jim. It's about everybody was born for a purpose. We have a destiny from God and our decision should be with God, not government. It's almost as simple as that. And, and, and they're learning the hard way, they can't sustain a communist system. So what are they gonna do? Are they gonna attack us? I don't know. I can tell you, my, my, I don't know this, but I'm telling you from what I learned, being in the middle of the Soviet Union collapse, the Ukrainian war of independence, and what Deng Xiaoping told me in 1991, they're at that point right now. And what are we gonna do? We can't, we can't win this way. So what are we gonna do? And the next step may be this bamboo curtain trying to get Brazil and India and the BRICS to move into their system and just use Yuans. Now your question was, okay, and so let's get back to, you mentioned the president. There are leaders overseas that are worried that China knows how much trouble they're in and whatever uh, uh, egregious steps are gonna take, Machiavellian steps are gonna take to save themselves. They'll do it while while our current president is president in the middle of our election cycle when we're not able to react as quickly or as efficiently or as um, uh, conclusively throughout the system as we could if we had a new president by, by the end of 2024 going in the office in 25. They won't wait that long. And and I, I think they're at the cusp of having to make the decision. And the hardliners are saying, take Taiwan, put up the curtain, it's our only chance. And They have another chance, they could come to the table like Gorbachev did, Uh, it would be a harder financing scheme, but we could still refinance, the world came together. We did it at Bretton Woods after World War II, but everybody was at the table, the war was over, and the guys that got beat didn't have a seat. And everybody that won said, okay, what do we do? And we recalibrated the world's debt, reestablished the banking system, made the dollar the world's currency, borrowed against it in the Marshall Plan, rebuilt Europe, the rest is history. Now we could do that again without war if they would listen, but but I don't know. Now, okay. So why then? One last point. What happens? You asked some time ago. What happens if let's say Brazil switches currencies? They've got all they got over a trillion dollars in um, um, <clears throat> debt in dollars. So Mexico's debt, Brazil's debt, India's debt, or three large economies of over a trillion dollars, but. Uh, you know, less than three trillion. They're, they're smaller than Japan. What would happen if they tried to switch currencies? Well, they're not thinking it through because they say, okay, we're just going to move into your system. You're going to buy our goods and yuan's. Uh, we're going to put a, a BRICS currency together based on commodities, which is soybeans, wheat, pork bellies, other things they make agriculturally. On paper, it might make sense. But now you've got two currencies that have, in my opinion, uh, uh, infected the system. You don't know what it's worth against the dollar and all your debts denominated in dollars. How do you pay off your debt? How do you do it? Well, nobody knows. And and what they may be thinking, I don't know that India is, but you know, what, what Brazil may be thinking So, well, just default. And China could say, well, just default on your debt. What are they gonna do? You can't repossess a country. So, We'll work with you on, they do, I mean, China does have a, a large manufacturing economy, just like Walmart sells a lot of stuff. But you wouldn't think Walmart was the world, just like China's not the world. But there's a lot of things you can buy there, but, but not strategic minerals, not oil, um, not wheat. Not they don't make that. And so what are you going to do? Well, to reconcile all this, it, it, we started back way early in the conversation about how much debt the world's in. Well, I thought you were going to ask about the world's economy. And let me just tell you real quickly, I mean, inflation will persist through 2024. Uh, there'll be a tightening of capital, particularly for smaller businesses. Banks will have to pull in their horns a little bit. There'll be, there will be more bank failures. It's manageable. But, you know, we had uh, the average of bank failures. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. The average number of bank failures, Jim, last year was two a month. And you didn't hear about any of them. A lot of them are small, a lot of them are regional banks, but two a month. I mean, bank failures are part of it. And the uh, FDICs, uh, well, I mean, not, well, yeah, the FDICs guarantees on your savings accounts were fine. The bank pays in premiums to cover that. And it, and it was fine, it, it, it didn't go insolvent. But it didn't have enough money to bail out the SVB. Now, my point is, is that <clears throat> in the next 18 months things are going to get tighter jamie diamond the uh, chairman of the board of, of uh, jp morgan chase just to say emphatically uh, we're going to be in recession no later than the first quarter of 2024 it's a 3.5 trillion dollar bank he has access to more data than the government quite frankly on consumer spending and what bank accounts look like he says most COVID relief funds will have been spent by then and people will be looking for capital that they don't and, and they won't have it won't be able to get it from banks and spending will be curtailed we're going into a recession could be mild he didn't say it was going to be severe of course he wouldn't i mean he a panic but now you the cnn and some of their analysts i mean you've got a lot of people there saying it's coming in the fourth quarter what does that mean less purchasing power less growth higher interest rates less access to capital and then extended problems with debt people on credit cards and and other things. Uh, there'll be realignment, manufacturing, supply chains. There'll be shortages of food, not, not, but not starvation, Jim. We've got enough food in the world to feed everybody for a year or two, but prices may go up. Uh, supply chains will be re-structured. Re, uh, um, and then, uh, you know, the problem The problem becomes, you know, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, they're low on money like everybody else. Uh, it's one thing when Greece fails. But, okay, let's get back to the debt. So, if, if two or three countries defaulted on their debt at the same time, the IMF wouldn't have enough money to bail them out. Yeah, you know, it, it depends on who they are.
0: I mean, but small countries. Oh, don't uh, we try not to use uh, uh, abbreviations? So, uh, Inter- International Monetary Fund. Explain what that is. Uh, well, the World Bank is is a is a is a world organization that
1: uh, banks belong to. Uh, for the purpose of managing the world's economy and helping developing countries primarily. The International Monetary Fund is a lending arm that lends money to say, uh, Guatemala loans them $2 billion under certain terms that a commercial bank could could loan them the money uh, and monitors their GDP and tries to get the money back at a 2% rate at a low rate. So banking and a lending arm, International Monetary Fund. But they're not going to be able to just bail out with the currencies that they manage and and the fees that banks pay into it. Now, some world debt uh, is bank debt. You know, when when Greece failed, a lot of that money was Deutsche Bank. And uh, the nation state of Germany basically carried most of the load of of restructuring the, the Greece debt. If there had been two or three at a time, you know, if a couple other smaller countries had, had failed at the same time, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So there's that problem that we've got to watch. And if China continues to push this bamboo curtain idea, economic curtain that everything behind the curtain is only yuan's, and can sell Saudi Arabia on it, um, maybe uh, you know India or or Brazil, it could be enough to just upset the apple enough that. You don't know how how debt's gonna get repaid. You can't go to the Bretton Woods table and recalibrate it because the parties aren't in agreement. Uh, Inflation then hits the West because now you don't know what commodity prices are. There's a lot of reasons for this, but if the Yuan invades, then you've got this 26% variance of what prices are wherever you're buying it in the world. That's gotta be adjusted and it'll be inflationary. Uh, If it happens, uh, there could be two or three years of some real economic turbulence, but the United States and, and Western Hemisphere will come out better than China, assuming we don't go to war. It, it will, China does not have. The, they don't have a middle class. They can't make. They can't purchase what they make uh, without government subsidies. They don't understand the idea of, of freedom and free choice economics, and they've just about hit their wall. But they're going to take it and expand it by saying, well, we'll get more people. So if you got Brazil and India and Mexico for heaven's been, got involved in it, you can have half the world's population. You're talking about, about 2 billion people just between China and Russia. About 400 million in Russia, a little more than that maybe, and a little more than 1.4 billion in China. Uh, the thing that's most frightening to me is the, the deal that was just cut between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia brokered by china agreed to open embassies stop the war in yemen i mean these are two countries at their uh, inception have been at war with each other well not fair i mean before iran it was, it was persian it wasn't arab but let's say since muhammad you know since the death of muhammad they've been better enemies as Shiites and Sunnis, and now they're going to sit down at the table together broken by a communist nation why because Iran cannot stand our sanctions. They need relief. And so China says to Iran, we'll give you relief. If you do this deal with Saudi Arabia, we'll be your answer to sanctions to the United States. Bring your oil into our sphere and we'll work on our own currency. But whatever we do, we we, will allow you to to have the manufactured goods you need. What's in it for Saudi Arabia? No more war. Uh, the, the, the civil war in, in Yemen has subsided. Everybody's at the peace table. Uh, that solves part of their own uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, it also elevates them in the region now as a capitalist broker. They've got capital, Iran doesn't. But I think it also is, now this is me, Jim, talking, looking at it as, as an historian as well as an economist. Why did Mussolini go with Hitler? I mean, he was a, he was a dictator. And he saw that, that his future and, and what he wanted to represent in Europe was aligned more with Nazism than it was you know, fascism and Nazism aligned more with free, with, with free enterprise, capitalism and democracy. And so where does, where does the prince see himself? He doesn't like being criticized for what he does. He certainly doesn't like political correctness. He likes being able to dictate what he wants and get respect for it. And China will give him that. And if, if they sell even a third of their production in yuan,s you know, they could still buy, sell two thirds in, in dollars. They've got long-term contracts. And so they could bifurcate their economy to get enough dollars to get what they need internationally and take yuan,s like the Walmart scenario and, and get what they need in China. And it elevates them in the region they're at peace with Iran, they become part of the bamboo curtain economy. I, 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 you know, it's it's geopolitics, freedom versus totalitarianism uh, and economics, if you will, being a byline to some of these countries. And there's no way that, that you can can take you on right now, as say Brazil, and then easily convert them to dollars in, in gross amounts to pay your debt so now what do you do we go try to renegotiate it i guess uh you or you you just default and then it's up to the banks a lot of that's bank debt uh i don't know i don't know who holds all the Brazil's debt. i'd have to look but you know it's incremental debt it's got a structure to it and so <clears throat> it would just absolutely be a mess and what do we do about it? Well, we got to hold China and reason, so why don't we do do You know, there's this war game that, I don't know if you saw it on, uh, I think maybe it was, it was 60 Minutes or, or where I saw this, thing. there were war games played in public in Congress uh, where Republicans and Democrats, elected officials and members of the administration uh, played out a war game. What would a U.S. do if China invaded Taiwan? and then went through all the scenarios about bases and munitions and fiscal assets. And and part of it was sanctions. And he had a a, a retired general playing in the role of, this is in public now, and and I thought it was an exercise worth having. I actually liked watching And the president of the United States said in an interview point blank, that if Russia, I mean, if China invaded Taiwan, would we commit troops? And he said, yes. And the interviewer it was 60 Minutes said, well, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're not talking about a limited war like Ukraine. You're talking about if they invade Taiwan, we will commit troops on the ground. And the president said, yes. And so if that's something else that, that's out there that we, don't, we haven't really thought through because what China has learned, Jim, is that they can't have free enterprise anywhere in their system or their system will fail. Think about yeah. that, statement, that statement again. See, we don't worry about it in the West. Do anything you want to do. Uh, nobody wants your currency, so you're gonna have to get in the dollars. That's not because we outlaw it, nobody wants it. And they can't, if they can't control you, they can't compete with you.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so so they got to take Taiwan one way or another. And if they do, we're, we're committed to defend them. Where does that lead? And, and debt may be the second consideration.
0: Mark, you have given, uh, (laughs) I've been with you a number of times, you always amaze me, and you do that once again. I took copious notes trying to keep up with you. And um, this might be overwhelming to some, but I'm telling you it's really critical for us all to be aware of this. Uh, Mark, um, I'd really like to keep asking you questions, but I'm gonna refrain from that and ask you to pray for our nation um, pray for China pray for Taiwan's protection like you I'm 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 watching what's going on and I see on the news concerns me greatly and 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 pray for our world our world economy you know how to articulate that kind of a prayer better than anyone so I'm going to start with you with a prayer and then we're going to roll out to some others to lead in prayer
1: okay you want me to start
0: yeah I do and, and before I said, once we'll go into prayer I won't say it's afterwards but I just want to look to you as my brother and my friend. I've had the privilege of traveling with Mark, been with him in Jerusalem, I've heard him speak there. And of course, I already mentioned Ukraine and other places. Been with Mark a lot of times. And uh it is such an honor to be with you today. I have such deep respect and admiration and love for you, my brother. Well, thank and, you so
1: much. And vice versa for all you're doing in the world and all the efforts you made in this last trip. Okay, let me let me try. Father, <clears throat> Father God, we we ask that leaders of nations think of the people rather than themselves. That being able to control and stay in power isn't the ultimate goal. That China will come to the to the negotiating table and, and ask for counsel on how to coordinate their currency. And that how do they exist going forward without dominating and, and demanding that we yield to communism, particularly in the, in the fact that it eliminates you from society and the decision-making process. Father, I pray for my own country, that they understand that we need to balance the budget, that if we'd balance the budget right now, there'd be no question which currency in the world was the most powerful. And, and investment would continue to flow to freedom and, and, and the Western world. And on this debt ceiling, will our leaders together stand and come to a conclusion on what they're going to do, how they're going to cut the deficit, balance the budget, and raise the debt ceiling in the the short term because they've already spent the money. This isn't money they can even claw back. It's gone and due, and as it's due uh, probably by July, uh, that they don't beleaguer the debate to the point that it scares everybody else in the world and in any way makes people dump the dollar because they think that there's somehow that the intractable nature of Congress and the president is going to leave us, our own country, in default of the payments that we can easily make. Now, Father, I I pray for leaders uh, up at at the grassroots and for pastors and for entrepreneurs and businesses to think in terms of the people and not themselves. And what does it take for us to, 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 to move at the local level to make sure that everybody is taken care of in a network where we support each other, just like the first century Christians and the fourth century Christians did at times of crisis. The body of Christ became where everybody turned for hope and inspiration. Why? Because they reflected the love of Christ without condition. And seeing that love in action, they wanted more of it. And it was one of the greatest times of evangelical growth in the history of the world. I pray for those times again. I pray that that we as Christians will be the answer, that we will not condemn, but talk in terms of this is what is needed for our own purposes and brotherly love. Now, I ask for this reconciliation of leaders and this participation of all of us at the grassroots through the body of Christ, glorifying you in all of our purposes. And all of our efforts, that your name be glorified in your purpose, and, and Father, that your will be done as you had designed it and created it when you created the universe. In Jesus' name, I pray. We pray. Amen.
0: Uh, Mark, we're going to go on in the spirit of prayer in a moment, but I, I just want to, I wish I would have jotted notes down instead of just praying with you. Uh, you really outlined the prayer strategy as we continue in prayer. Uh, I wrote chi, chi, praying for China and then praying protection over Taiwan. That was the first two.
1: Yeah, I didn't make mention Taiwan, I'm sorry. Uh,
0: oh, I, I must have just heard that in my own brain then. Um, and then. And then praying for the US economy and then praying specifically as relates to the debt ceiling. I'm saying this for the benefit of those who are about to pray. You gave us prayer points. And then I caught this business and entrepreneurs and those in local leadership learning to, to take care of people first. You, by the way, said like they did in the first and fourth century, which means i got to have you back on and talk about what did Christians do in the first and fourth century so we can learn from that model. And then the reconciliation of our leaders, gather so they not so polarized, and the body of Christ to glorify Christ. Uh, uh, what I have now here, China, Taiwan, third U.S. economy, uh, fourth, specifically the debt ceiling, which is uh, running this kind of a debt is a sin in itself. Five is business and entrepreneurs and taking care of local communities, the people in there. Uh, Sixth thing is reconciliation of, of leaders so we can move forward as a country and, and for the church itself, the body of Christ to glorify glorify Christ. Uh, I, I, did I miss what should be a sort of a talking point or a praying point for the people as they go into prayer right now? Any key thing that I should have included?
1: No, I don't think so. The, the set seventh point, is so that the, that we as Christians will become relevant in this crisis and, and provide hope and answers uh, at the local level, every, everywhere that we exist, and, and that we'll see our, our, our mission uh, in these times as a worldwide, the kingdom of God is a worldwide kingdom, and that we will see our mission as a worldwide kingdom to provide hope and an opportunity for people to join in the lord's plan for what he has for us for what you've written and you talk about biblical government biblical solutions and 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 righteous government
0: 193 nations in the world and what mark has just reminded us we're all ultimately citizens of the holy kingdom the kingdom of our god and so there's uh, one nation that is overlaid on all the other 193 nations is the people of God making a difference in all of those 193. Thank you, Mark Nettle. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you, your time, your brilliance, and your passion for Christ.